0: Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Bill Hearman. I am one of the elders here. And um, this morning, we are having a sort of last minute change to our regularly scheduled sermon series. Uh, yesterday, we found out that the good uh, Pastor Worsley was down and out with a stomach bug. And the good Reverend McCullough was out of town until late yesterday afternoon. And so here we are. Uh, this morning, we are going to be considering a passage from the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there now. We're going to be studying from 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, We're going to look at verses 6 through 11, and that is on page 955 of the Bibles that should be in arm's reach of you. Now, since we are doing sort of a one-off sermon series uh, on 1 Peter this morning, I'd love to give you just a quick reminder and introduction to what this letter is all about. It was a letter written by uh, its namesake, the Apostle Peter. Uh, to Christian churches in what uh, we would call modern-day Turkey today. And he wrote this letter to those Christians in order to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God. The main purpose that he had for them was to unpack what it means to live in light of the gospel of Jesus in the face of what we might call overwhelming opposition from the world around them. And today we're going to be studying Peter's final instructions to his brothers and sisters, his parting wisdom that he ends the letter with. And that way, this passage actually kind of reminds me of when my parents dropped me off uh, at college. So we had uh, gone upstairs and unpacked some of my stuff, and we went out to lunch, and then we went down to the car, and my dad gave me a hug, and he said something like, you know the difference between right and wrong, choose the right thing. That was something that he had said to me dozens of times before. It was not some new wisdom that he was choosing to impart, but a reminder of something that he thought I needed to hear at that particular moment, something he wanted to emphasize. And then I walked around and gave my mom a hug, and I will admit that I don't remember what she said, but I imagine it was something like, don't forget to do your laundry, and don't only eat Pop-Tarts for the next year, though um, I suspect that might actually be my own advice to myself uh, if I were going to do it again. But... In much the same way, Peter is ending his letter here with some final words of wisdom for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's nothing new. He's told us all of these things before, but he's reminding us of things that he feels that they need to know in that moment for them. And so we're going to take time and just unpack those words of wisdom one at a time. And in this passage, he gives three parting pieces of advice. The first one is he tells them to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. The second thing he wants his brothers and sisters to remember is that they should be sober-minded and watchful. And the third thing is that they should look ahead to glory. Humble yourself, be sober-minded, look ahead to glory. We're just going to take them one at a time. Now, before we get into that, if you have found uh, the passage this morning, I would invite you to stand if you're able, and I'm going to read for us from 1 Peter Chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Parting words of wisdom, number one. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Peter wrote this letter to be an encouragement to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this first line, he returns to that encouragement. He's telling them, if you are feeling low, if you are feeling torn down by this world, you can trust the Lord to carry you now, and you can trust the Lord to exalt you in heaven. One of the things that is abundantly clear throughout Peter's first letter is that the life of following Christ is not easy. It comes with suffering. It comes with persecution. It comes with sin that's hard to get rid of and that the Lord disciplines for. And when Peter here says that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, it's his way of saying to his friends, you don't have to stand up under the weight of the world. You don't have to stand up by yourself under the cares that you are carrying around on your shoulders. No, you can relinquish that control to God. You can throw yourself into the arms of a mighty rescuer who will not only redeem his people, but who will exalt them in heaven. Now, when I first read this verse, to be honest, it took me a minute to see it as an encouragement, to take comfort in it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's kind of an unusual phrase. And I think um, it's pretty easy to misinterpret it, actually. I think you could easily misinterpret that if you were inclined to see God as an oppressive tyrant only out to demand submission from his subjects. But the language that Peter is using here is intentional, and it intentionally undermines that tarnished view of authority. Instead, he uses the words here to call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord that God has shown his people for generations. You see, this phrase, the mighty hand of God, that's not a new phrase in the Bible. That's something that has been used over and over again, and especially in the Old Testament. And one of the most notable times that that phrase, the mighty hand of God is used, is in describing the Exodus story. You'll remember that God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out to him. And it says that God heard their cries, and he responded in love and compassion And he reached down from heaven with his mighty hand and rescued his people out of slavery. When Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he's saying, submit to this God who loves you, who hears your cry, who acts on your behalf and who is strong enough to carry the weight of the world that you are carrying around with you. That's why it's meant to be an encouragement. And I'll tell you, I think we can see that encouragement all the more clearly when we draw the connection between verses 6 and 7. When we see the connection between humility and anxiety. It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter knew that this life would be full of anxiety. He knew it because he had experienced it. He knew it because his friends had experienced it. And in these verses, he's encouraging his church to take those anxieties and to cast them onto the Lord. His parting message for his brothers and sisters is to cast your anxieties onto the Lord. Now, we're going to spend a moment and we're going to unpack that. But before we do, I want to talk about what we mean by anxiety. Anxiety. Because the modern idea of anxiety sometimes brings to mind what I would call a physical stress response. The kinds of palms sweating, heart racing, shoulders clenching, sort of world closing in physical response that people sometimes get. That is not what we are talking about at all in this passage. That kind of physical, emotional response is sometimes irrational. It's often irrational. It's largely unpredictable. Now, it can be the result of the kind of anxiety we're talking about today, but they're not the same thing. The kind of anxiety that we're talking about today is an internal agitation of the heart. It's an uncertainty, a fear that accompanies a stressful circumstance. It's an inner turmoil or an angst. And what Peter is saying is that when you have those internal moments of anxiety, of angst, of uncertainty. You can cast them off onto the Lord. This language of casting onto the Lord is an unburdening kind of language. When I first started thinking about what it meant to cast something onto the Lord, the first image that came to my mind was a ship being cast off from its dock. Right? You think of the rope that ties the ship to the, to the pier and that when somebody reaches down and unties it, they sort of cast that rope off and they set the ship free. What I like about that is the kind of freedom that we're meant to experience from this kind of casting off of our anxieties. Right? We're no longer tethered to this thing and that freedom is beautiful. But I don't really love that image for another reason and that's largely because what happens when you set the rope free is that ship then goes into the ocean and that's kind of the thing that makes us anxious in the first place. So don't go there. Think about the freedom. But I think another image that's actually much more helpful here is that is one of sort of carrying something heavy. I wonder if you've ever had that experience, where you are carrying something that's just a little bit too heavy for you, and you're pretty sure you're going to drop it. And oh, the relief when you hand it to somebody who can carry it. I have this vivid memory of uh, when we were moving into our home, and I was carrying this very nice piece of furniture that my wife would not have been especially happy if I had dropped and broken and I was very confident that going up the stairs, I was gonna drop it. Well, thank heavens my brother-in-law was there, who is probably 50% stronger than I am. And when, I, when he came and he took that thing out of my hands, oh, I whew, that was a close one. That's the kind of relief that we're meant to feel here, that kind of unburdening relief. But I'll tell you what, that kind of feeling depends exactly on who you were handing the thing to. Because there's no way that I would have handed that to my two-year-old child. It would have crushed them, and the thing would have broken. But when I handed it to my brother-in-law, who was much stronger than I was, I knew that there was an enormous relief, and so too with our anxieties. So too with our anxieties. When we can take them and put them onto the Lord's shoulders, when we can put them into his mighty hands, then we can have relief because we know that he is not going to drop us. I do want to pause here, though, for a moment and talk to those of you who are struggling with this type of anxiety. All of us have these moments in our lives. Some of, them, some of you may be facing them this morning. And what I want to encourage you in is to see the connection between the kind of anxiety that you may be feeling and the kind of self-control that you may be holding on to. You see, when we are holding on to an anxiety, it's because we are not yet desperate enough to let go of it. The feeling of anxiety is a desperate one, to be sure. But really, it reveals that we aren't quite desperate enough because we have some remnant of self-control, self-reliance, some idea that we could possibly hold this thing up that we have on our shoulders. We're not yet fully casting that burden of the circumstance in our life onto the Lord. We're keeping that control for ourselves. And the reason that I think this can be helpful is that when we're facing those moments, and again, all of us have them, but when we face them, if we can understand why we're feeling the way we are, if we can see the connection, then we've got a chance at fighting it. And so I hope the connection that Peter is making for you here will be a helpful one. But if it is you this morning, then there is one more truth that Peter needs you to hear. He says it in verse 7. The Lord cares for you. That's a simple truth. It is a simple declarative statement. Whatever else the Lord has on his mind, whatever cosmic battles he is facing, whatever business of the universe that he is attending to, he cares for you. This is a balm for the anxious soul. I wonder if you have in mind here the passage in Matthew chapter six when Jesus teaches about anxiety. Jesus tells his disciples to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? See Jesus is telling us that the father cares for the birds but he's gonna care for you so much more because you are his children. You have no reason to be anxious, Jesus tells us. You know, sometimes I think people are worried that pastors, uh, when they're preaching, have specific people in mind, or specific circumstances when they're preaching sermons, that we're trying to use this pulpit as kind of a bully pulpit to tell you what we really wanted to tell you the day before but didn't have the guts to, and what we really need you to hear. And usually I try to avoid that. Uh, But in this instance, I will gladly admit that I have failed in that endeavor. Because I am, in fact, talking directly to you. And you know exactly who you are. And there's one thing that Peter needs you to hear. And that is that God cares for you. God cares for you. God cares for you. But how, you say? How do we know that? Because in my anxiety, how do I know that to be true? And the answer is look to Jesus. Look to what God has already done for you because he sent his son, to die for your sins, that he might give you new life because he loves you, because he cares for you. And if he has already given you his son, how will he hold back anything else from you that you need? God cares for you. And so you can see in these first two verses that Peter is giving are trying to give a deep encouragement to his brothers and sisters in Christ. In this life, things will be hard. They will be. And when you are feeling brought low, you can trust the Lord to carry you through the tough times. That's what he wants his brothers and sisters to remember with his parting words of wisdom. You can trust the Lord in the tough times. Now, before we move on to the second parting word of wisdom that Peter has, I want to take a moment to pause and acknowledge that the encouragement that Peter is giving here is meant for Christians. And so if you are a follower of Christ this morning, then these truths are for you. Whether you are feeling desperate or anxious, whether you're feeling apathetic or ashamed or guilty or whatever else, Peter is encouraging you to turn again to the Lord and to cast your anxieties onto him because he cares for you but I'm really thankful to say that there are many people in this room who don't yet consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. And so I wanna take a moment and think about what this text might mean for you. And to do that, I wanna go back to verse six for just a moment. It says there that those who humble themselves before God will be exalted, and by that, Peter means exalted in heaven. Those who are humble now will be exalted later. The clear implication meaning that if you exalt yourself now, God will humble you later in judgment on the last day. We can see from this verse that the stakes of this kind of humility are incredibly high. And so I wanna be really clear about what does it mean to humble yourself? What does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? It means to put your faith in Jesus. Instead of building yourself up, it means to say, I do not have it all together. Instead of thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good person, it means saying, I am a sinner. It means saying, I do not have what it takes to be in control of my life. Humbling yourself now means saying that I need a Savior and that Jesus is my Savior, that he died for my sins, that he was raised from the dead to rescue me from death and that I am now ready to live a life that follows him. You see, the promise of rest and security in the arms of a loving and mighty king that Peter is promising in these first two verses, that rest is available to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. And I will tell you, friends, if this is something you are thinking about this morning, any one of the pastors here, any one of the members here would love to talk with you about it any and we pray that you will take us up on that offer. So before then, we move on to point two for the day. Let me just summarize. This first thing, these first words of wisdom that Peter wants his brothers and sisters to hear is that he wants them to remember that they have a mighty Father in heaven who cares for them and that they don't have to bear the weight of the world themselves because it is too heavy. In other words, you can cast your anxieties on him. That's what he wants you to know. Now, point number two this morning is closely related, but a little bit separate. It comes in verses 8 and 9. Second parting words of wisdom say this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be sober-minded, he says. Be watchful. Well, these two phrases are Peter's way of saying that the Christian life requires an urgent attention to our faith. He's saying, don't fall asleep like I did. Don't think that a kind of casual indifference is okay. If you are a follower of Jesus, then living in faith requires urgency and attention. We might think about the kind of urgency that he is calling for here by imagining a person taking a hike in the forest. Now, on the one hand, we might imagine a person taking a hike at Radnor Lake or one of the paved greenways in Nashville on a sunny day. That person doesn't have a care in the world. They are even barely looking where they're going. They aren't concerned with the world around them. If they're like me, they're probably talking on their phone loudly. They are totally oblivious to what's going on. Now for a moment, imagine that same person taking a hike in the wilderness of Alaska on a rainy day where they can't see very far. Well, the countenance of that person is very different, isn't it? Because in that forest, there are predators that are gonna kill you. And if I had told that person, hey, there's a mountain lion over here. It's already killed a dozen hikers before you. Well, that would change everything. You would be laser focused on what was going on. Every step would be carefully placed. Every tiny noise carefully attended to. And that is the kind of focused urgency that Peter is saying the Christian faith requires. Because in this life, the devil is out there seeking to devour our faith By any means possible. And what Peter is doing here is he's warning us, don't forget that. Now, I want to take a moment and pause to consider how you might be responding to this encouragement from Peter. To pay attention to your faith. You see, one response you could have to this text is to say that you don't believe there's a lion out there. And there are plenty of people who feel that way, actually. And maybe that's you this morning. But I think a much more common response in today's church is to acknowledge that there's a lion out there, but to think that that lion is a tame one. And by that I mean one of the ways that the devil attacks our faith is through a casual familiarity with our sin. In other words, The devil attacks our faith by making us not take our sin as seriously as we should. Matt Chandler, uh, a few years ago, used this wonderful illustration that I have found so helpful in my own battle with sin. He was talking about one of those uh, When Animals Attack TV shows, and he recounts a story of a photo shoot where a model was selling some kind of product uh, by standing next to a lion, Uh, and perhaps not surprisingly because it was a When Animals Attack show, the lion attacked the model. Now, all the trainers and animal handlers were totally shocked by this. They were like, this has never happened before. The lion was raised in captivity. It's been around humans forever. This is the 100th model shoot that they've done. How could they possibly have attacked him? It was a lion! It was an apex predator. Of course it attacked the meal standing right in front of it. Friends, our sin is the same way. It is seeking to destroy you. Don't get comfortable with it. Don't get, think it's all domesticated and it's not going to attack you. Don't cozy up next to it thinking it's going to be fine. Take it seriously because it is seeking to devour you. Resist it, friends. Fight back. That is a lion you're dealing with there. but it's not just attack from sin that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of how the devil can use suffering to attack our faith. That's where Peter goes here in verse 9. You see, he's calling for an urgency in our faith because he knows that we're going to suffer. In verse 9, there's an implicit warning. There's an implicit warning against the feelings of isolation that come because of our suffering. One of the most dangerous things lies that the devil can tell us is that God has left us. One of the most dangerous lies that the devil can tell us is that our friends have left us in our suffering. And when we feel alone, we tend to forget that those feelings are actually lies of the devil that he is using to threaten our faith. It is like a stealth bomber. We don't hardly ever see it coming before it's too late. And then we don't even know what hit us. But friends, one of the most important messages from the whole book of 1 Peter is that suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. And it doesn't mean that your friends have abandoned you. Don't fall prey to that attack either. Pay attention. Suffering is going to come. Pay attention. Sin is going to plague you, and don't let those things destroy your faith. Be alert. And, verse 9, resist him. Well, how is it then that we resist these attacks? How do we fight back against the effects of sin and suffering and guilt and shame and everything else that threatens our faith? Well, Peter doesn't tell us here. He tells us that we should, and so we are left to turn to other areas of the Bible to clarify what does it mean for Peter for us to resist the temptation of the devil. There are several passages we could to. Matt read from one in 1 Thessalonians a little bit earlier. I want to take us to Ephesians 6 right now. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord... And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then down to verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you see that same language of alertness that Paul is using to describe the battle for our faith? Keep alert with all perseverance, he says. And then do you see the weapons that we have been given to fight this battle of faith? They aren't especially complicated They are the Word of God, meaning the Bible. They are prayer, and they are each other. And so what I'm going to say right now isn't especially profound. It's not especially groundbreaking. The preacher's going to tell you to read your Bible and pray. But I'll tell you what, friends, the Christian life requires you to engage in God's Word. It does. You have to read it, to talk about it, to pray over it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. And the Christian life requires you to pray to your Father in heaven. And when we don't do those things as regularly as we should, we are neglecting the kind of focused preparation and attention that is necessary to resist the prowling lion that is seeking to devour our faith. When we don't do that as regularly as we should, we are treating other things as if they are more urgent than our faith. And so I'd ask you this morning, what are those things in your life that get more attention than your faith does? And why is it, do you think, that they draw your focus more than your faith does? That would be worthy of a consideration for you this week. What is it that draws your attention away from your faith? Now I do also, as we're encouraging one another in this, want to acknowledge that all of us in this room at one time or another have found reading the Bible and praying hard or maybe even impossible. And I know there are many people in this room for whom this week was another week where you fell short of what you had hoped for. And I know there are people in this room who feel that it has just been so long since you've read the Bible and prayed that you are giving up. But friends, we just can't let those failures in the past keep us from the urgent attention to our faith that Peter is calling us to here. And so if it is you this morning, my encouragement to you is do not give up. Do not give up. We want to encourage you. We want to help you. The people in this room are here to fight this fight with you. And so if you are struggling to find time to read your Bible, if you are struggling to find time to pray, invite someone in this room into your life. Talk with them about how you're structuring your days and your weeks. Ask them to help you. Ask them to read the Bible with you. Ask them to pray with you. And I promise you, they will say yes if you ask them. This is an urgency that we all need each other for to cultivate in our lives. We can't do it by ourselves. I do want to make just one more comment about the tone of this encouragement because I think especially if you are feeling discouraged by your walk of faith right now that you might hear the urgency of peter's exhortation to you and you might feel judged by it you might be hearing this as a stern warning of a disapproving know-it-all but that's not the tone of this at all just take a moment and remember who is writing this it's peter He knows what it is to have the devil come after him. He knows what it is to have his faith tested. He fell asleep in the garden when Jesus asked him to pray. He denied Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He's not coming to you to judge you. He's coming back from his hike to warn you, to shake you out of any misconceived notion of what the Christian faith is like. Guys, There is a lion out there seeking to devour your faith. I've seen it devour other Christians. And to be honest, he almost got me too. So when you get ready to go out on your walk of faith, you need to know he's out there. And you need to be ready for him. Resist him, he says. But you don't need to do it alone. I mentioned that once before already this morning. I want to emphasize it again here. We don't need to do this alone. We don't need to resist, resist the temptations of the devil alone. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who join with us. Peter reminds us of this. He says, our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered too. The devil is attacking them too. And we are not walking in these woods alone. We have a battalion of defenders walking shoulder to shoulder with us, praying for each other when we can't muster the strength to pray ourselves. Not only that, our general is the Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of God and interceding for us to keep us from falling prey to that lion. So if this morning you are feeling alone in your faith, look around. These are your people, and we are ready and eager to join the fight with you. So please, I beg of you, ask us. Point two this morning. Pay urgent attention to your faith because the devil is there seeking to devour you. Resist him. It's words of wisdom that Peter wanted his brothers and sisters to know. The third point that Peter makes to his brothers and sisters, the third parting wisdom before he closes the door and drives off. Don't lose sight of the hope of heaven. Don't lose sight of the hope of heaven. Look at verses 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here again, Peter returns to the theme of encouraging Christians to hold fast to their faith in the midst of suffering. In the midst of the inevitable burdens of this life, and he gives us another weapon in the fight. He reminds us that God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Just look at how he ends this verse. He tells us that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Have you ever felt neglected and broken? Well, God himself will restore you. Have you ever felt rejected and ridiculed? God himself will confirm you. Have you ever felt weak and defeated? God himself will strengthen you. Have you ever felt broken down and uprooted? God himself will establish you. How could he ever do these things? How could he ever do these things? Well, friends, the God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, one of the most important teachings of this letter that Peter is writing is that when we are in Christ, we have a future inheritance in heaven, a hope that can never be defeated, a hope that can never be tarnished, a promise that Christ will return to make all things new a promise that the sufferings of this time are nothing compared to the eternal glory that's ours in heaven. Peter, in this letter, ends it the way he began it, reminding his brothers and sisters not to lose sight of their future hope. Now, a few years ago, Jennifer and I uh, went down to Peru, although I think it's more than a few years ago now. Uh, We went down to Peru, and while we were there, we went to see some of the really miraculous uh, Incan ruins, right? The most notable of which is Machu Picchu. But if you've been down there, they're actually kind of all over the place. And what is amazing about them is they are built up on, this, on these incredible mountainsides. And you can see them for miles. But what surprised me about them was like how hard it was to actually get to them. Right? You kind of always could see where you're going, but the pathway there was pretty tough. Like sometimes you had to go on switchbacks up the side of a mountain where there weren't any guardrails or anything. And sometimes you had to go into kind of a darker place where you couldn't really see where you were going. And sometimes the pathway was a little bit tight. But you always knew where you were headed. You knew that that path was taking you to that city up on the hill. I think the Christian life is exactly the same way. We don't always know which direction we're going to take. We don't always know what dark valley we're going to have to walk into. We hardly ever have things go the way we thought they would. But the truth of the gospel and the truth of the promise here is that no matter what path you're on, when you're in Christ, the final destination is not in question. When you're in Christ, the final destination is secure. The final destination is glory. The final destination is heaven. And Peter wants you to remember that. He says, don't lose sight of your hope of heaven. Because this world, it's going to bear down on you. It's going to tear you down. It's going to be tough, and you're not always going to know which way you're going. Don't lose sight of the hope of heaven. You know, the longer I've been a Christian, the more encouraging the hope of heaven has come to me. I think it's because I'm more aware of the brokenness of this world. I'm more aware of my own brokenness, of my own insufficiency, I'm more tired of seeing the people around me suffer and struggle. I'm more tired of broken relationships. I am more weary of the world falling apart. and I just long more and more for my home in heaven where all of these things won't be true anymore. I think Peter leaves us with this vision of heaven because he wants us to be comforted now. He wants you to be comforted now with the hope that is yours in heaven. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to leave you with some words of a song we're going to sing in just a moment. Words that put in our hearts the hope of heaven. Words that remind us of the inheritance that is ours. Before we do that, let me just remind you of Peter's parting words to his brothers and sisters to encourage them in their faith. He says, stand firm in the grace that you have been given in Christ. Trust in And submit to the mighty hand of God. Cast your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. Don't forget that. He cares for you. Be alert. Be urgent. Resist the attacks of the devil. Fix your hope squarely on heaven. Knowing that this present age will pass away. And God will make all things new including you. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All o'er those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. there God, the sun, forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in his bosom rest? I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us, we pray. Help us, we pray, because this world feels so heavy and dark. We pray now that you would enliven our hearts with the hope of the gospel, that we might trust your good and mighty hand in our lives, that we might urgently pursue our faith, and that we might never lose sight of our hope in heaven until you bring us home. It's in Christ that we pray these things. Amen.